You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. Irregular menstruation in adolescent patients can have many underlying causes. How can physicians best evaluate the symptoms in their adolescent patients and protect the patient's future reproductive health? Joining us to discuss adolescent reproductive health conditions and fertility preservation is Dr. Selena Kalra, Assistant Professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Penn Medicine. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Kalra. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, it is indeed our pleasure. This sounds like a topic that might be difficult to approach an adolescent child about. Is this something that you typically have to inquire and get them to open up about, or do they come to you quite frank and open about this? Well, just like with everything else, it really does vary. Certainly, some patients are proactive and they kind of Google me online or try to find someone who has a specific interest in adolescent GYN issues, whereas others, it seems like they're coming more at the urging of their generally their mother. And typically, is it a symptom of an irregular period or a missed period that brings them in? Most commonly, I certainly see the entire range of menstrual irregularities. So I often see patients who are concerned because they haven't even gotten their period yet, and they may be you know, 14, 15 years old, 16 years old sometimes, and they're seeing all their friends are kind of getting to that stage, and they're wondering why they are not yet there. The workup of that, of course, is that of what we call primary amenorrhea, Mm -hmm. where we really need to look into more specifically causes of congenital abnormalities that might be at play there as well. But oftentimes, much more commonly, what I see are patients who come to me either in high school or sometimes early college where they had had normal periods for several years, and then they're noticing either they're starting to skip periods or their periods are just coming in a way that they're completely unprepared and not expecting it. And in that first situation, the primary amenorrhea, is there a certain age that one should start to become more concerned that, hey, something may not be right with this young lady? Yes, certainly. So if a young woman has not started her period by the age of 16, she should absolutely be referred to a a reproductive endocrinologist or someone with an interest in this. Also, if by age 13, you're really seeing the absence of any secondary sex characteristics at all, such as there's no breast development or anything, it's better to refer early. And are there certain underlying medical or endocrinologic disorders that one should look for in that situation? Yes, for primary amenorrhea, oftentimes, like with everything in medicine, it starts with a good history. Again, one big clue is whether there's secondary sex characteristics developing, such as breast development. So in North America, the average age of the onset of puberty is nine years of age. And then once puberty starts, it can take over four to five years to really culminate in the onset of menses, which is sort of the end of puberty. During that stage, we see the first sign is breast buds, which often develop by nine or start to develop at nine. And then also the growth spurt then follows a couple years later, and then that's followed by the onset of periods. The patient comes and has started to develop many of those things, the breast buds, the growth spurt, and and seems to be progressing along a normal timeline, albeit a little bit later, oftentimes we'll just watch. However, if they're not developing any of those signs, we do start to look for hypoestrogenic causes or low estrogen, such as 
ovarian failure, which we can see with patients with underlying chromosomal abnormalities. Very interesting. And, and I think of body weight as playing some role in regular menstruation. Does that play any role with the primary onset of menses? It absolutely does. And, you know, in this day and age, we're seeing it both with extremes of body weight. So the very underweight young women definitely have issues with onset of their periods, as well as very overweight women will often have very irregular periods. Interestingly, the way I always describe it to patients is that evolutionarily, the only reason young women have periods is to reproduce, to procreate. Mm -hmm. And it's a very elegant system, the reproductive access, I think. And really, the body kind of send a message, talk to the brain and say, is it a good time to reproduce? And one of the sort of endocrine uh, issues at play there in patients who are really overweight, so in anorexic patients, for example, the cortisol levels will be very high due to mm -hmm. a very high stressed state. In addition to that, the body fat levels are very low, and leptin is involved in this signaling now as well. So for both of those reasons, the low body fat as well as the high stress, the brain gets the message to not initiate sort of that gonadotropin-releasing hormone signal, and that will often be a cause of amenorrhea in those patients. And then the, the even more common situation you were talking about is a woman who has had regular periods and for some reason is now missing periods or having irregular bleeding. What type of things do we need to think about in that situation? So the most common cause of what we call secondary amenorrhea, which means you've had regular periods and then they become irregular, is polycystic ovarian syndrome. And again, a history will clue you into that, but certainly there can be other underlying causes, thyroid disease, so TSH level you should check in addition prolactinomas, which are small tumors in the anterior pituitary, which release prolactin and can be often a symptom associated with those is milky discharge from the breast. But most commonly what we see are patients who come in with polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is very common. And it's really based on having two out of three criteria. One is irregular periods defined as less than eight menses per year. The second is signs of androgen excess. So as you know, the ovaries make both estrogen, estradiol, and testosterone. In patients with PCOS, oftentimes there's a higher testosterone level, which results in acne or hair growth. And not surprisingly, oftentimes when the teenagers come to me, they're not so worried about the fact that they're only getting a period once every three months, but mm -hmm. they are very bothered by the fact that they have troublesome acne and uh, hirsutism or, you know, either upper lip hair, sideburns, or chest hair. And the third criteria is having a characteristic appearance of the ovaries on ultrasound. So the diagnosis is made by excluding other causes such as thyroid disease and prolactin issues as well as looking at sort of the androgen levels, checking the testosterone level in the blood to ensure that it's below 200, which speaks more to PCOS. If it's above 200, then you really need to go look for a tumor. Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and joining me to discuss adolescent reproductive health conditions and fertility preservation is Dr. Selena Kolra, Assistant Professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Penn Medicine. Dr. Kalra, PCOS is fairly common, as you're saying. Besides the appearance and the loss of regular periods, are there other consequences to this condition? Sure. I always think about it in terms of short-term issues and long-term issues. So mm -hmm. in the short term, certainly people can be bothered by their periods. Most commonly, they're bothered by the skin and hair changes. To regulate the periods, we can put them on a birth control pill to make sure they're getting a period every month. And also for the acne and hair growth, we can also 
put them on a birth control pill, an oral contraceptive to decrease their testosterone levels. Mm-hmm. Long term, the issues with PCOS include a higher risk of type 2 diabetes. And interestingly, oftentimes the phenotype of PCOS is obesity, so that is not surprising. We know that obesity is a risk factor for type 2 diabetes. However, even in lean patients with PCOS, we see that they have a higher risk of type 2 diabetes compared to their lean counterparts without PCOS. So one thing that I always check in a PCOS patient newly diagnosed is I do start with a two-hour glucose tolerance test. It's been shown that a fasting glucose will miss a subset of patients with impaired glucose tolerance. And those patients, as you know, are the ones that we have the most ability to intervene on and hopefully decrease their risk factors. Also, they are at a higher risk long-term for cardiovascular disease. So I also always check a fasting lipid panel. And I've seen very frequently that these patients are put on metformin, even with normal blood sugars. Is that the correct practice? No, not anymore. That's really fallen out of favor in our field at this point. Certainly, if the patient has impaired glucose tolerance or type 2 diabetes, you should definitely treat that. But more and more, what we're finding is that especially those patients with impaired glucose tolerance would benefit more long-term with behavioral or lifestyle modification. So exercise and weight loss, especially in an adolescent patient, as opposed to just starting medication, I really would try to work with her to try to get her lifelong risk lower with non-pharmacological means. And at this point, we certainly are not putting patients with the diagnosis of PCOS on metformin if they do not have impaired glucose tolerance or type 2 diabetes. Oh, very good. That's good for me to know as an internist. In terms of future fertility, are there issues with fertility in PCOS? There can be. So, Certainly, what I often tell, and again, of course, these adolescent patients are not really thinking of their future fertility. They're thinking of trying to regulate their periods and their other symptoms. I often tell them that when they stop the pill, when they're ready to start a family, there can be a more difficult time getting pregnant on one's own, meaning that they may need to seek the help of a fertility consultant. You know, the issue with PCOS is there's just less frequent, less predictable ovulation. So certainly when you're trying to start a family, if you only have three or four periods per year, it can be very difficult to achieve that. The good news is is that we have uh, many different treatments available to us and some that have been around for a very long time and are pretty low risk and low cost, such as clomiphene citrate. What I tell them is, you know, stop your pill when you're ready to start your family and see what happens with your menstrual pattern. It's very interesting. Patients with PCOS who are overweight, if they lose as little as 5% of their body weight, they can resume normal periods on their own. So oftentimes, you know, if there's a change in lifestyle, they may stop their oral contraceptives and actually start having normal menses on their own and there's no issue whatsoever. However, what I tell them is if after six to 10 weeks you haven't gotten a period, then definitely come in and see someone who works with fertility issues. There's a myth out there that, you know, your body's shocked into not knowing exactly what to do when it stops a pill. And so people will think it's normal to stop a pill and wait for three to six months for their period to come. And that can, of course, get very frustrating. Mm -hmm. And so I just encourage them to come in sooner rather than later because they should actually have resumption of menses if they are ovulating on their own. Very interesting. So with these lifestyle changes, if these women are successful in bringing their weight down, very often they will start ovulating more regularly. But then if not, there are other treatments that are available. Exactly. Now, I think of adolescence and the early college years as being times of great turbulence. Do we attribute menstrual irregularities to stress and lifestyle change too frequently, or do those really play a profound role in regulating the menstrual cycle? No, Well, it's not uncommon. The important thing is before you attribute lifestyle and stress, et cetera, to being the underlying cause that you rule out other causes. So 
certainly we call that functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. Most often it's caused by either what we say is exercise, stress, or uh, intense weight loss. The important thing there is that before you give someone that diagnosis, you rule out other causes. So, of course, check their thyroid, check their prolactin levels, rule them out, you know, at least with a history for PCOS. And finally, they really should be evaluated before you tell someone it's the stress causing it. Certainly get an MRI of their brain to rule out a hypothalamic lesion or a tumor that could be interfering with the ability of the brain to get that message out. Okay. So the way I often think of irritable bowel, you do have the obligation to make sure that there isn't something structural or hormonal going on. Same thing with this. Don't jump to attribute a change in menstrual cycle just to the stress of somebody's lifestyle. Exactly. And the other important thing there is if you do attribute it to stress, so for example, either a sort of physiologic stress where there's very low body weight or even a stress, you know, I I teach the medical students and one of the cases is a surgery resident starts and she becomes amenorrheic. But as opposed to just saying, oh, you're stressed, come back, go do some yoga and I'll see you in a few years, it's important to remember that those patients, because they're not getting GnRH stimulation from their hypothalamus to their pituitary, then their pituitary is not sending follicle-stimulating hormone to stimulate the ovary to make estradiol. And so they are in a hypoestrogenic state. And of course, especially adolescent and early college years, it's very important for building bone mass. These patients really need estrogen at this time in their life. So you need to talk to them about estradiol supplementation, either with hormone replacement therapy or oral contraceptives to make sure that they don't go through this very critical period of their life not seeing estrogen. Dr. Kalra, are there any risks to the uterus in polycystic ovarian syndrome? Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. The underlying issue with PCOS patients is that, of course, there's less frequent ovulation. However, the ovary is very active and it's putting out estrogen. And in fact, those patients are in what we call an unopposed estrogen state because they're not having the ovulation and the resulting progesterone, which then, of course, when progesterone levels drop, that stimulates the withdrawal bleed and shedding of the uterine lining. So if those patients go for long periods of time not having periods, and many of these patients will go for years only having two or three periods a year and not think much of it, they certainly do put themselves at risk for endometrial hyperplasia, which is, you know, the precancer of the uh, uterine lining and sometimes even endometrial cancer. That's another reason to make sure they're getting treated with either an oral contraceptive to bring periods on in a monthly fashion or oftentimes if a patient doesn't want to take oral contraceptives, we will just give her Provera or progesterone withdrawal bleeds to bring a period on. Well, Dr. Kalra, thank you so much for being our guest this week on Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine for reviewing for us some of the common things we should be thinking about with primary amenorrhea and then secondary amenorrhea or changes in a woman's menstrual cycle and focusing particularly on polycystic ovarian syndrome. Very educational and interesting. Thank you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. To download this program or access ReachMD on demand, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.